Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of this Disruptive Successor Show. Today, my guest is Maggie Bender-Johnson, a third-generation family member of Bender Insurance Solutions, an 85-year-old, employee-owned, independent insurance and surety brokerage firm. She became CEO in 2022 after more than 17 years with the firm. In addition to her career, her family, and eclectic hobbies, she serves as president of the board of directors for the Capital Region Family Business Center in Sacramento, California, one of the largest family business organizations in the country. She's passionate about supporting family businesses to grow and prosper, employee ownership, family businesses, community involvement, inclusive leadership, okay, and dogs, Lego, science fiction, and animal rights, because I asked. So, we're going to focus our show on the transition that she went through and that her family's business has gone through to get to the third generation of leadership and why and how they went about becoming an ESOP. So Maggie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk about ESOPs because it's something that so few people really understand. But let's start with you and your family's business and the history and story behind it. Tell us a little bit about the history of your family business. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm really excited to be here. My first podcast. Great. Well, Bender Insurance Solutions started out as Warren G. Bender Company because my grandpa Warren started it in 1938 after deciding that he didn't want to take over his family's business, which was in farming. And He moved down to Sacramento from Chico and started a very small personal insurance agency, which he ran successfully with a handful of employees for many years until my dad, Stephen Bender, joined him in 1972. And my dad was right out of college and he was an econ major. And he had an interesting pull into the business too. He, While he was an econ major, he had a lot of passion for performing arts. And he went to my grandpa and said, I think I'm going to change my major from econ to acting. And grandpa told him, maybe you should check out the insurance industry. It has been great to me and our family. And so my dad decided that the family business was the right path for him. 
And he actually recruited his older brother to join as well. And so my dad was actively buying shares from my grandpa and grandma. And by the time my grandpa decided he was ready to retire in the mid 80s, my dad was the majority owner and he stepped into the role as president. The reason my grandpa decided to retire at that time is that the changes in the industry were just becoming a little too much for him. He came up in the relationship business where a handshake should be good enough. And he started seeing people not honor handshakes and he was just done. And How so old was he at that time? Approximately. Do you remember? Like was he in his sixties, seventies? He was probably in his sixties. Yeah. Okay. My dad was 35 and he's the youngest or he was about 30. So yeah, he was in his sixties and my dad's the youngest of four. So he decided that, and it wasn't a surprise. They'd been working on their transition a long time. And my dad was actively growing the agency. So when my dad joined in 72, there were two employees besides himself and grandpa. And then by the time I joined in 2005, we had 45 employees. It was a much larger organization where we had started specializing and really differentiating ourselves from the... And so my so my dad and my uncle were leading it, my dad, the owner, and my older cousin, Chris, joined in the 90s. And then I joined in 2005. My two sisters joined probably, you know, five to 10 years later. And so... you. It has the makings for a little drama in terms of who's going to be the successor. Right. Uh, sure. <laughs> especially since my cousin was 10 to 12 years older. And when I joined, I was 22 or 23. And so it seemed clear in c- certain folks' minds. But over time, it just I created a path with my dad's help on what I need to do to get ready for the role and become a competent insurance professional. And that path was got me here today. And so my cousin, Chris, he actually, his true passion was religion. And so he left the agency last year to go start a, or to run a parish in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And then my two other sisters work in somewhat of a part-time capacity and they're raising their children at the same time. And, oh, and I wow. made a decision in my late twenties that I had no idea how I could do both be a parent and run the organization. And so I decided that the company would be my baby and I would love my nephews. Gotcha. Wow. There's a lot, a lot to unpack here and talk right. about in terms of the family. So, so today the company is 55 employees. Is that right? Yes. And how many family members are actively involved in the business? Both of my sisters still work for us. Uh, One is our brand manager. The other does small business development. And then my cousin's wife works for us as well in in our employee benefits department. Okay. And so you have probably different groups that get together and talk about the business. You've got your managers that probably get together, whether for training or whatever. You have a leadership team, I take it as well. Yes. And... Do you have a family that gets together to talk about the business separate or shareholders that get together? You have shareholders because now you're an ESOP. So that's a whole other conversation we'll get to. But what about the family? Is there a family group that gets together and has a council or family constitution or it didn't need that given the level of involvement of people? We explored that when we were still privately held or family held. But we 
the folks that were closest that were involved in the business already got that information and the family members that weren't tied to the business weren't going to have any equity. And so they really weren't stakeholders. And so the sales council never, or I'm sorry, the family council never panned out for us. Okay. And so was it difficult to make the decision to go as an ESOP? And can you explain to people what ESOPs are? People might not understand that it stands for employee stock ownership, right? Yes. Uh, plan. And so it's an actual type of incentive plan and a tax structure. Explain to people what an ESOP is and base, may, and then maybe take us through how you came to think about becoming an ESOP and, be, and then becoming one. That's a lot of that's a lot of questions to unpack. Explain to people what an ESOP is first. So a an ESOP is just like every other business, just the ownership is held in trust for the employees as a retirement plan. And so as they retire or leave the organization, they will get distributions just like it were a profit sharing plan. And so depending on what your income is based on the general income, you get a portion of stock allocations for the year. And so for us, it was a great way to tie performance to pay and to incent folks to to all row in the same direction to achieve the growth goals of the organization. And now I'd say that growth is much more of a positive term than it is before because we're very transparent with saying the more we grow, the more we can bonus, the better our shares perform, that everything gets better. And so the reason we decided to go ESOP, I actually didn't tell you this, Jonathan, my dad, before I joined the org, created an ESOP at that point. So maybe in 2000, he formed an ESOP because I had told him when he visited me in college that I wasn't going to join the family business. It it wasn't really what I was looking for at that point in time. And so he was looking at alternatives and he went through the whole exercise of setting up an ESOP, which is very expensive. And he got to the end of it with a full plan in place and realized he was he didn't have the team that he thought he needed to make the ESOP meaningful to the organization. And so he basically didn't move forward with it at that point. And then a couple of years later, I joined the organization and we started talking about different types of perpetuation. And some of it was gifting, but unfortunately for me, a lot of it was just paying for it with after-tax dollars, which is um, really makes you appreciate what you're you're working for. And so I started buying shares. A couple of my partners started buying shares, promising next-gen professionals. And we had this core group of seven people that couldn't take on any more tranches of ownership because the bank was empty. Or <laughs> And so it would have worked fine had we not been as successful as we were at that point in time. And our dollars as per for purchasing shares just didn't go as far as the feasibility or the, the study several years back had projected. And so we reevaluated and knew we didn't want to sell externally. I could have done it myself. Not that I'm independently wealthy, but dad, you know, dad would have worked with me on structuring notes. And, but that really wasn't what I wanted because we spent so much time talking about perpetuating dad's equity that I knew that it, I would have that same struggle in another 15 years for myself. And if I'm not having children, this 
and my nephews are such young boys. I, it's a lot of pressure to put on an unknown. And so it was, it was the, you know, the clouds parted and the ESOP looked like the right path. But candidly, I was pretty cautious about moving forward with the ESOP because of the lack of control that I had heard about. And thinking that employees would know what everybody made and they would vote me out of here. And it just, you know, those things aren't true. You do need to be more open with your organization. You have to form a formal board of directors, have outside directors. We had to form some committees. My comp is approved by those committees. And so it's de- it's definitely more structure than what we were used to, but we still get to be us. I think that's that was the most important thing for us to protect the legacy that grandpa and my dad had created because we knew that would have gone away if we would have sold externally. So in your story, it makes me wonder, like, it sounds like it was a perfect storm or a perfect queuing up of events that made sense. And so had you a small toddler in the house, might your thinking about the ESOP change thinking, well, maybe we'll have a fourth generation in a vendor in the business, and maybe that's not the way to go. And would like, did that weigh into the decision very much, or just a small, probably just a small factor? I'm guessing. Yeah, a little bit, I think. So, if any of Warren's, my grandpa Warren's descendants wanted to come and work for our business, I would. They would have the same opportunities as me. Of course, they need to be a very talented professional and work even harder than the other employees. But it's not just my dad's lineage that has this opportunity. But I don't think so. I, yeah, I don't think so. Because I recognize the talent that my family has, but we we don't have it all. And so it's been a real treat to enjoy a diverse management team that has a lot of different backgrounds and perspectives. And most likely, Jonathan, it's not going to be a vendor who takes it after mm-hmm. I retire. I'm mm-hmm. totally fine with that. It, as long as they c- carry on the values and make us better and continue to treat our employees well, then that's great. That's awesome. Sounds like you do some work inside the company to clarify what the values are and to make sure that they're alive and well and living in the organization. Is that right? Yeah, we just did a value refresh, I guess, Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, because we look way different than we did when we came up with the first set 20 years ago. Like, for example, we're not, we have this huge, beautiful office, which I paid loads of rent for, but it's almost completely empty because we're allowing our employees to work from home because that's what they want to do. So with our old values, it just, it didn't work. And so now connection is huge for us because we have to be more intentional about having connections with people because I'm not going to run into them on the way to the restroom. Right. And so how do we as an organization create those opportunities without falling back into the, oh, it was so much easier when everybody was in person. Let's just do it that way. Yeah. So you're, so you've learned, so is everyone working remote at this point and you're building a culture through through that, knowing that, you know, we're on Zoom or Teams or whatever, is that, is that been a big part of your company? How did you keep the culture alive? I think it's a, a, an accommodation, a flexible accommodation to people's preferred way to work. Okay. I definitely agree that in certain roles, you need to see each other. If a new mm-hmm. person, and they need to be trained. But you accomplish some of that 
Like, for example, we have a large sales team. If you bring on a salesperson, you can't manage that remotely. You've got to be in the car with them. You've got to be in the meeting, taking notes and being that second pair of ears and really that coach and mentor. So I think that we're we're flexible when it makes sense. But we also need to look at this critically and reevaluate and accept that Nothing is a set it and forget it that we just need to continue to watch what's going on and be adaptive. Gotcha. Let's get back to the ESOP stuff because I'm just so curious about what's the process like to go through becoming an ESOP? What are the costs? Yeah. What? And did you have to do a complete redo of what your dad had done? Or oh, yeah. You, yeah. You couldn't just sort of dust that off and get it started again. No, it did create a little challenge for us, but it really didn't give us a leg up as we established it. So so I think to put it out there first is that if you're considering an ESOP, you need to be giving with your heart because there's a good chance that you're going to be getting about a third of what you would have made if you would have sold it on the external market. So. We, our shareholders were okay with that because of how important our legacy was to us. But a lot of organizations, when they see the multiples that are out there, they just, they can't do it. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind. So that's a big, that's a big discount, like a really big discount. My impression was that you got another third back in tax benefits that were almost in perpetuity as long as you were living. So that's really inaccurate, or is that? close. No. So, so the sellers, we're not seeing the tax benefits, but the business is seeing the tax benefits going forward because the, uh, the profit at the end of the year, rather than being taxed on it, it's going to be, will be taxed when the, the participants start taking money out of the organization and it'll be on their income tax. So, so by going that direction, it allowed us to take on the debt service to buy out my dad and myself and, you know, the handful of others and not have to get external financing. So that's, that was really nice. That's great. But the one third of the realization compared to market value would certainly be a deterrent, which now explains to me why most people, why few people are talking about ESOPs as an exit strategy. It doesn't look all that attractive to a lot of people. I mean, who are some of the big ESOP companies that we all know about? You probably maybe yeah. know some of these names. Can you name like a few? Winco Foods is one. Okay. Gardner's Supply. I have all their catalogs all over my house. Often it's food products, mm. a lot of engineer firms. A fair amount of insurance agencies. And so the third price, I've got to guess that's unique to my industry because okay. multiples right now for insurance organizations, they're dipping, but they were up to 10 times EBITDA. Wow. It was crazy. Just that is crazy. Because for of what the, size firms, by the way? Million, yeah, my my firm. Okay. So 55 employees with, yeah, that's pretty crazy because... I mean, 14 times makes sense for a mid-market company, but yours is still what I would call a small business. Yeah, no, it's the renewable income that comes with an insurance agency is very attractive mm-hmm. to investors. So if it were a construction firm, it might be more like, you know, one to two, something like that. But so the way that we went about setting it up was first, we went and interviewed a bunch of ESOP companies 
locally to find out what they liked, what they didn't like, what how they might have set it up differently. And that was hugely helpful. And then I started. And let uh, me ask you, local yeah. because you like to think and hire locally or because they it was easier, less expensive to hire them or. Oh, no, this was these were just companies that are already ESOPs. And so oh, we were okay. interviewing Sorry. them. OK, gotcha. So, Understood. so like Frank M. Booth is one of our clients locally, mm-hmm. a contractor up in the Chico area. They're, they're a partial ESOP and mm-hmm. we were very curious how they were successful. Tesco Controls also was local and ESOP. They mm-hmm. were. I think they've their ESOP was bought out. I haven't talked to them recently, but that was helpful. And then we started going, or I started going to conferences to meet the people that are involved in the industry, hear, take the classes, you know, start to build my own knowledge around it. And then once I came back and presented to our board that, hey, you know, this this seems like something that is a great opportunity for us. We engaged an attorney. She did a feasibility study and then the expense went crazy from there. No, uh, the feasibility study was that expensive in and of itself. No, the feasibility study was like 7,000 bucks. It was. Okay. So you have to hire a trustee to represent the ESOP's interests through both the transaction and uh, in the operation of an ESOP. I, one of us could have been the trustee ourselves. Right. You can't, you right. Can, I don't know anything about that. I, you know, play to people's strengths and. I don't even know if in 10, 15 years, I would want to do that. Neil Brosen's the fellow we work with, and he has been so helpful in guiding our, yeah, it's. And that's what he does as a full-time, like he's acts as trustees for companies or any, or families who are, have assets that need to be distributed and managed. No, he's just for ESOPs. He's just for, oh, wow. Really very specialized. Okay. It's a huge community. I think there's, I think it's around 6,000 ESOP companies in the United States, but the industries that serve them, it it's pretty big. And so, yeah, we had to hire Neil for the transaction and then we had to hire his attorney. Mm-hmm. I have name for my attorney and his attorney. And then we had to hire a valuation firm to value the company. And interestingly, I didn't get a copy of that valuation. It was Neil's valuation to negotiate against us. Mm-hmm. We were coming to terms. And so I'd say uh, hard costs, 100K easily. But then when wow. you add up all the time of our team, it's way over that. Amazing. Big commitment, big investment. And and so why do you think, I'm looking up some of the big names that are ESOPs. Why do you think that family, I'm sorry, that food businesses are oftentimes ESOPs? I'm seeing Publix, supermarkets, Winco Foods, Schreiber Foods. These are, I don't know them that but the but Publix is a giant supermarket chain in the Southeast. Any reason that food businesses are becoming ESOPs is I mean, I'm not sure. Is it a way to attract to, and keep talent. Oh it's, yeah, it's a built-in. You know, you're guaranteeing profit sharing and you're guaranteeing that you're not lying, lining the pockets of of wealthy owners, and that it'll be more fairly distributed to you. I think, as you said earlier, they're not very common or well known. Mm-hmm. So while it, I believe it's a very big competitive piece to recruiting talent, it's still an educational topic. You know, what is an ESOP? Do I need to buy into it? Am I on the board now? Do I get to vote? So 
for some of our more senior roles, it's been a great way to recruit, but other ones, it, it creates a conversation, which is good too. And so I know you're very inclusive of leadership and that is your philosophical kind of bias, which I'm all favor and, and applause. Do you think the ESOP motivates people to work harder or to not work as hard thinking others will carry the weight for them? Well, I, I would hope that it makes them work harder. I'm not sure. I From what I hear from people, and granted, they sometimes tell me what they want me to hear. It, sound, it sounds motivating. And, and part of this is that we want educated shareholders or ESOP participants. And so we've really ramped up the transparency with reporting financial metrics for our business, but also ramped up the financial literacy education. So we bring in a financial planner every quarter and she's doing classes to get folks to think about their own finances differently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the smarter they get, the more valuable they are to, you know, society in general, it's, they're more engaged in the conversations we're having. It's been huge, I think, in, in getting our team developed. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with a book called The Great Game of Business. So it was a book that was the story of Jack Stack and the Springfield Remanufacturing Company, which I believe was a John Deere or maybe International Harvester subsidiary in a small town in Springfield, I believe, Illinois, maybe Missouri, I think Illinois, that they were going to close down. And the plant and the people got together under Jack Stack's leadership and they bought the company from the parent corporation and they engaged in this financial literacy and they literally created the movement of open book management. Jack Stack was probably on the cover of Inc. Magazine during Inc. Magazine's early years multiple times. And they've created now an entire program teaching people open book management. It's quite a, quite a popular thing among, and I would think it's popular among ESOPs because creating financial literacy is just so important. I remember reading something in the book that suggested that employees think that owners make about 50% of whatever the sales are in a business. So if you've sold $10 million in business, the owner's probably making five of that because they don't recognize what really goes into running a company. And so as I recall, one of the exercises in the book, if you want to teach financial literacy, is take $100 and that represents your revenue. And then pass out single dollar bills to different people and say, okay, well, that was for insurance. Well, that was the utilities. Well, that was payroll. Well, that was payroll taxes. Well, that was advertising. And then they see like you got a dollar 97 left after, you know, after that exercise and they start realizing, well, you got a lot of things to pay out. So it's pretty amazing. And I'm just, I'm thinking that to run a successful ESOP, you have to engage in the same level of education to get engagement and commitment to what you're doing. Definitely. That's my thoughts. All right. So, so what were the challenges in the passing of the torch or baton, maybe we should say, from your father to you? Did you feel supported 
Were there issues at time where you were uncertain about your leadership or where your dad was uncertain about your leadership? How did that all go down? Yeah, well, I I got to guess that I'm going to always have some insecurities about my leadership style just because that's who I am. But imposter syndrome. Always. Uh, but my dad and I have been talking about this transition pretty much since we joined the Capital Region Family Business Center in 2007. He knew that I had come to to do this. I came to the business to do this. and But we weren't quite sure what it looked like. And so he would take me along on calls. And I had my own career at the business where I started as a broker. And then I moved into operations. But when we were about seven years out from his retirement date, we realized we need to start, we need to figure out all that he does because he has a huge book of business, which is a its own planning of figuring out who's going to handle those accounts afterwards and what will that knowledge transition look like. And then, you know, for, in terms of leadership in the business and does he do anything operationally? What about in the community? And then the hardest thing I think was my dad is a phenomenal, he really is engaging and inspirational in how he leads and speaks to people. And so how do you quantify and replicate that? Because we really embrace the DISC profile for personalities in our organization. And my dad and I are legit on opposite sides of the circle, which means our personalities are opposites. And so... Complimentary, <laughs> but sometimes conflicting. Yes, definitely. And so things that came naturally to him were going to be a real stretch for me. And so we identified what was it particularly that I wanted to work on. And I went out and got some of it myself. Like I got an MBA and I took some advanced coursework and management. But the best thing for me was to hire an external coach. That was so valuable. I met with the same gal for about three years. We met every Friday and she was huge in helping me to, to overcome issues that were coming up. And I think that what's unique in a family business is that a lot of our stuff is all a mesh together. And so if it's not as simple as I'm pissed at my boss for being unreasonable, it's I'm pissed at my dad for being unreasonable and it's going to be really uncomfortable at dinner tomorrow night, you know? And so it's in a family business, it's so much higher stakes, these conversations. And so for me, it created a lot of, and it still does. It created a lot of stress around these are the most important people in my life, but we are responsible for all of these families over here and we have to be successful. And so that was Do you think that I'm sitting here, by the way, with a book written by Ernie Dowd and Lee Hausner? You might know their names. Yeah. Uh, these are Ernie has passed and uh, Lee is still with us. But these are people that have been in the family business space for many years. And the book is called Hats Off to You. And the hats are labeled dad, mom, sister, boss, advisor, cousin, uncle, and I mean, he tells a funny story. And I think it's in this book where... He invites his son over and he's wearing a red baseball cap and it says dad on it. And he invites him over to come over, out, you know, hang out in the pool together and they're, you know, having a really nice time. And then he goes, son, I'm just going to switch hats for a moment. He puts on the CEO hat. He goes, son, 
I love you as a dad, but you're fired as an employee. And right. So some of the, like, I just want you to know that I'm not doing this as your dad, but I'm doing this as the owner of the business who has to think out, you know, for the welfare of the business. And so these are some of the, this highlights the challenge that goes on, I think, in family businesses. And what I've observed is the family businesses that succeed together have a, have a, a higher level of functioning as a family. Some people say all families are dysfunctional, but I don't know that I believe or ascribe to that. I just, I think that higher functioning families are able to work through these issues. If your dad was someone that you couldn't talk to about, about this, maybe do you have a different disc profile and you couldn't come or come to some kind of agreement and then move forward that because you have conflict or you couldn't have healthy or productive conflict, these would be challenges. So the higher functioning, the more cohesive you can be as a family, as a leadership team in business, the more results and the further along you're going to get. That's been my observation. It's so true because he and I, we have different perspectives on self-care and mental health. And I'm a huge believer in therapy and he's not as big of a fan of it. But when we started having clashes in our relationship, he was totally on board to come to some sessions with me because he gets how, I mean, we, we love each other. That's the whole reason I came into the business was to spend more time with him, not to ruin our relationship. And so. How did he feel about you getting a coach? Was he a proponent? He was all for it. Yes. He's been an excellent mentor, but he gets that he is prescriptive with his solutions. Whereas a coach is more, well, what do you think the answer is? Which drives me crazy. Just tell me what the answer is. But we don't you know, know necessarily what the answer. We have to figure I it out know. together. <laughs> so I don't, I'm not so big on that appreciative inquiry, like a psychiatrist. Well, what do you think? Or a psychologist. I think that we have to figure it out together. Um, and I can suggest what's worked for other people. I can suggest what my intuition tells me uh, might work in this situation, but every situation is going to be different. Yeah. And so, so it's interesting. And thank you for singing the praises of, of coaches and the roles that we play in our clients' businesses. And I lost my thought, but it was, uh, I think it's interesting that that struggle or that challenge. So what I was going to say, I regained the thought was the concept of what got you here isn't going to be what's going to get you there. And so a disruptive successor understands that they can't run the same playbook that their parents ran, that leadership and management is no longer autocratic. It's more democratic, that technology is prevalent. If you can't use things the way, you know, the way you can't run the business the way your grandpa was running the business, it never survived. And that the awareness of the market, the products, the services, the competition, there's you have to almost niche down to a level that didn't happen generations past because there were fewer players in the game and they knew less. You had to be more probably specialized. I think that would probably be true in your business as well. So definitely. Well, and just another, you didn't ask for it, but another plug for coaching that the three years that I had with my coach were fabulous. And 
for good or bad, I decided, okay, now I'm go- I've hit the role of president, which was five years ago. I'm going to go and do my thing for a while. And a lot of the challenged employees we were talking about, well, they're not here anymore. And, but I brought her back in for team cohort training, which has been fabulous because it's sometimes difficult to push new concepts through when your team isn't on the same page with knowledge. But I realized through some recent challenges I had that I really should have maintained that coach relationship throughout this whole thing. And so we're going to, she and I are going to start meeting again monthly just to help me because we're never fully baked. It's we're never done. And yeah, I, so true. I'm looking forward to continuing my coaching. I'm glad you realized that. I think some don't and they don't come back. And the value that we can provide as coaches when we come into teams and point out things that maybe others can't point out to each other because there isn't the trust or the they haven't created the place or the context to be able to have those trusting conversations. So I find that using some of the work that Pat Lencioni put together from the five dysfunctions of a team to be invaluable. I just took a company through some of those materials. It's a game changer to start engaging in trust exercises with one another. So, all right, let's talk about what's next. What's the plan for the fourth generation in this business? Well, You're still young, I know. So it's yes. kind of a presumptive question, but. <laughs> so I'm 40 and I'd like to work another 15 years because mm-hmm. my husband's older than me. He's a fireman. They have shorter life expectancies. If everything works out, I'll retire at 55. But if not, I have a you know great organization to you along with. But I'm right now working on my BHAG, my big, hairy, audacious yep. goal. And I think what is it's it's much different than doing a BHAG with a firm that I own mm-hmm. and because I have to get everybody on board with this and create excitement and tell them why this matters to them. And so but I also being an ESOP, I need to protect that feeling of balance because there are plenty of organizations that say we're going to double in five years and it's going to be painful, but we're going to do it. And I, we can be uncomfortable, but I don't want pain to, to achieve growth because that's that counters to the ESOP culture. And so I'm trying to create this BHAG that's also comfortable. It's almost like an oxymoron. Uh, I'm trying, so I'm figuring that out right now. How do I create a lot of excitement about growth without scaring people away? Right. So I think you can turn to Jim Collins, who created the trademark term BHAG, and look for some clues. There's a worksheet that we used in the scaling up community that was modeled after the BHAG. And it was the intersection of what we truly can be great at and our economic end, which is, you know, what is the unit, single unit of measurement that puts maybe value, whether that be profit or shareholder value to the business. That could be transactions, that could be, you know, value dollars per transaction, that could be clients, could be, there's a lot of different economic values that you could probably boil it down to. And then the third one is what's our purpose. And so why not start with why you're a third generation in a family business who brings a different purpose to the business. And so starting with that why question, which is 
why do you, and you really, this is the question that five-year-olds ask their parents. And why do you do that? And why does you do that? And why does that matter? And why do we do that? And just keep kind of going through it and coming down to something that all the employees can be excited about. So if you haven't done that core purpose discovery work, I think that is a great place to start, Maggie. Okay. And this, this is me providing coaching during a podcast, which is a rare, Thank you. rare phenomenon. I'll but, take free uh, coaching anytime. But take free coaching anytime. Talk to your coach about coming up with your why. And if you want, download one of the tools, shameless plug here, down one of the tools from my book website on figuring out the core purpose discovery. You have the link. It's on the website, disruptivesuccessor.com, and you downloaded the book so you saw the exercises. All right. I think that's great. So there's no clear successor in place. I mean, we're 15 years away from you even having an inkling of being out of this business. You've built a business that is almost like a partnership structure. It really is, where everyone's a partner in the business. The more partners, the merrier, I guess. As long as you don't have to rule by consensus, that can be very difficult. Yes. Sure, you know, it's important to have a leadership team, maybe an executive team. And so, hey, it's been great chatting with you about your experience through this process. And I look forward to doing this again, maybe in May at the Capital Regions Family Business Conference in Sacramento. So. I'd love that, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Awesome. All right, folks. Hey, if you're thinking about becoming an ESOP, do what Maggie did. Go out and interview some other companies that became an ESOP. Learn more about it. Interview some experts. Reach out to people like Maggie who've been through the process and seem to be very generous with their knowledge and their time. And and then tell them you heard it first on the Disruptive Successor podcast. And so. You know the drill. If you like the show, tell others about it. Give us a great rating and stay tuned for future episodes. Thanks so much. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.